Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we are back for our first show of 2024 with Dr. Nicole Wynn who is the author of a number of books, including Suspect Communities and Terrorism on Trial. Thanks for joining us, Nicole. Thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about your area of interest and how you got into it? Sure. So my research looks at the intersections of national security and public schooling, and I've always really been interested in the relationship between education and war what is the role of schools in mitigating or exacerbating conflicts? And early on in my grad school career, I came across a, a high school that had a specialized homeland security studies program that was about training poor and working class youth of color for low level work in the security industry. So as TSA WAN guys, as military grunts, this was a language of the teachers. And I really began just following the, the, the way that educational policy was shape-shifting in response to the global war on terror. And that's taken me to this ongoing criminalization of Muslim, Arab, and Palestinian um, young people through schools, but also through society. Your, your book, uh, Suspect Communities, Anti-Muslim Racism and the Domestic War on Terror, it, it takes a look at the, I guess, the CVE industry. Could you maybe for our listeners, if they're not familiar with CVE, just go into a little bit about what that is? Sure. So CVE stands for Countering Violent Extremism. And this was really a response to the public outrage over really explicit policing and criminalization of Muslim and Arab communities. So we can think about people might remember the police infiltrating mosques and other community centers to try to break the coals for potential terrorists. And after after a certain number of years, the public grew tired of this blanket surveillance of entire communities, the treatment of entire communities as potential terrorists. And so in the United States, but also in Australia, the UK and, and elsewhere, there was this effort to, to create a friendlier national security state. And so the idea was we can integrate Muslim and Arab community leaders into the national security apparatus after the wake of different forms of police brutality, there was this turn to community policing. This idea of that we collaborate with the police, we can be seen as more legitimate, we can expand police power, and we can gain access to different kinds of communities while repairing our reputation among community members. So CVE is really about mobilizing community leaders, religious leaders, 
mental health professionals, teachers to use their daily interactions with young people to identify potential terrorists. And the way that they're asked to do this is that they're given these lists or warning signs of potential terrorists. And the early, the very early iterations of CVE, this was explicitly racialized. So if you were wearing quote unquote traditional Muslim attire, if you grew a beard, if you were attending a mosque, if you traveled to a Muslim country, if you expressed outrage over US foreign policy, things that many, many people identify with, these became seen as a, as a pretext to criminalize, survey, monitor, and report young people as potential terrorists. And CBE has evolved as this can't really target people in this way so publicly. And so they started criminalizing things like feelings of alienation and isolation, trouble in romantic relationships. These are very common experiences that only really arouse suspicion when they're expressed by Muslim and Arab people. And so CVE was really about finding a friendlier way to criminalize communities without actually changing the impact or processes on communities themselves. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I can't remember there being a big uptick in surveillance of emo, white emo kids. <laughs> right, yes, yes. Nicole, obviously there's been a lot of money thrown at this issue. I assume then that there have been substantial studies on the efficacy of these programs. What what return on investment have people been getting? Sure. I mean, there's no evidence, uh, there's no social science research, you know, proving that this approach has enhanced national security. Um, and in fact, the quote unquote science driving CVE policies and programs is you know fundamentally flawed. National security experts and practitioners themselves acknowledge that this is actually not a science-based approach to the war on terror. Yeah, and there's no aside from the fact that we we create these concocted sting operations where we provide the plots, the the materials, the ideas, like aside from concocting our own terrorists, creating our own terrorists, there's no evidence that we've unearthed some sleeper cells somewhere in Minneapolis, for example. So yeah, there's no return on on investments. What you do have is this growing outrage um, and frustration with police across the globe for this blanket criminalization and surveillance. Nicole, what's the relationship of CVE to, I guess, the related concept of de-radicalization and how is that uh, played out in communities in the United States? Yeah, so CVE is rooted in this idea that a person becomes a terrorist or engages in an act of mass violence at the end of this radicalization process. So people are adopting increasingly more radical positions and that these radical ideas combined with their social networks, combined with their life circumstances, turn a person into a terrorist. And again, this is not backed by any social science research. There's no evidence that the radicalization process is real. There's no evidence that shows that there are predictable indicators of progression in this process. Uh, but if we have this, if you know, we have this belief in the radicalization process, the solution is to de-radicalize people. So to provide interventions to turn them away from radical ideas that presumably drive people to the turn to violence. And part of what's problematic about this approach is that it not only justifies the criminalization of entire Muslim and Arab communities, it really locates the problem of political violence in individual actors. So 
individuals in this approach have these different pathologies. It can be a cultural pathology, a religious pathology, a, a theological pathology. And it means we don't have to think about the context in which violence circulates. So we don't have to think about, for example, the U.S. invasion of Iraq as producing all of these other forms of violence in response. And so that's one of the, it's another serious issue with how CVE has dehistoricized, depoliticized, and decontextualized political violence. So all we have to think about are these individual actors, these sad, depressed Muslim kids who might turn to violence because they're looking for action or satisfaction or friends. And we don't have to think about U.S. empire, military intervention, and so on. When when I think of young people looking for action, looking for friends, and then being recruited to fight overseas, there's another cohort that comes to mind in relation to U.S. empire. Um, Nicole, in the the suspect communities, you talk a little bit about uh, Dylan Roof and some of these mass shootings that aren't defined as terrorism. Why is it that some crimes are defined as terrorism and some aren't? Well, there's certainly a a racial orientation where individual white actors are insulated from this community blame. So after September 11th, every Muslim everywhere was blamed for the September 11th attacks. You don't see Dylan Roof, who shot up a, a black Episcopal church in the United States. You don't see the FBI going into white churches and white communities across the country saying white white communities have a terrorism problem. You have a narrative around mental health, access to guns, and so on. And those aren't unimportant questions, but they again divert our attention away from the role of, for example, white supremacy in driving some of these issues of violence. And so part of what CVE, if we think about white supremacy or racial violence as an iceberg, CVE directs our attention to these most visible manifestations of white supremacy. So the Dylan Roofs of the world, and we ignore all of the roots that produce these expressions of mass violence. But if we we use the word terrorism to delegitimize um, and really turn into sort of these evildoers through the through this mobilization of the concept of terrorism. So it does particular political work that's only really possible if you're a person of color, right? Where you can cast an entire group of people as evil, as as anti-American, anti-democracy, and so on. In the book, you speak to people within the national security apparatus. Could you tell us a little bit about the type of ethnographic research that you undertook and what is the concept of studying up? Yes. So ethnographers often go into disempowered communities to study their everyday experiences and then to report back on them. And anthropologists develop this idea that Sure, we can understand everyday people's experiences with oppression, with daily interactions with institutions, but we can also observe and interview people in positions of power to understand the everyday machinations of power. So I spent a few years traveling around the country, hanging out with national security practitioners and policymakers, going to their conferences, hanging out with them, having breakfast with them 
and conducting interviews with them to really understand from from their perspectives, how do they think about national security? How do they think about the global war on terror? What is their role in it? Um, And one of the things that you find is that things like the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, these big national security agencies are, they're unwieldy, but they're also unevenly understood by the people who work in them. So different FBI agents have different understandings of what a terrorist is or what their radicalization process means or what their relationship with the community should be. And one of the reasons why I find that really important is because for community organizations who want to resist, that want to resist these policies and practices, understanding the inner workings of the national security state could be really useful to understand how they're being criminalized and then how they can resist that criminalization. But it also reveals tensions among national security practitioners and policymakers that are also ripe with political possibility and the sense that there are tensions that could be pushed on to agitate for for different kinds of changes in policy, in research, and in practice. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. And you can also listen on the Community Radio Plus app. We're currently talking to Dr. Nicole Wynn about CVE and terrorism. Um, Nicole, in your book, Terrorism on Trial, you undertook a, a close investigation of a number of terrorism trials in the United States. What were the main features of them that revealed how the courts have been influenced by the US war on terror? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Part of what I found is that the judges and jurors have to have to narrowly analyze cases before them. So a defendant in each of these cases did particular things, said particular things. And oftentimes the way that uh, prosecutors and the judge, judges shaped how the jurors understood the case was essentially saying like all of the all of the context of a defendant's actions don't matter, right? So if, it, if a young person grew up in Iraq, survived life under Saddam Hussein, survived the U.S. invasion, and then fled to to a Syrian refugee camp and experienced President Bashar al-Assad's really brutal regime, which included the use of chemical warfare, and then came to the United States and decided to return to Syria to fight against the Assad regime, joining ISIS or any number of rebel groups, the courts like don't actually really care <laughs> about those contexts when they're trying to adjudicate particular cases. And so again, the courts kind of strip all of the, the politics, all of the context, all of the history away from individual cases. But I think more broadly, if we think about individuals who go to Syria and come back to join ISIS or other rebel groups and are then arrested, charged, and prosecuted for terrorism-related crimes, it it defies logic in the sense of what does, I mean, this is the the premise of the book, is what does locking up an individual actor do to disrupt the broader Syrian war? And so like, if we're, we're actually interested in reducing violence, reducing international conflict, does this approach by the courts to arrest individual actors for things that they did overseas actually make sense as an anti-war posture? And for the most part, we find out that, one, this doesn't do anything to reduce violence globally. And two, it, it's an uneven enforcement. So we, we see a lot of people from the United States and the UK going to, for example, Ukraine to fight against Russia. And If these people had been Muslim going to a Muslim country, they would be known as foreign fighters, and that act would be criminalized. 
But instead, people are being celebrated for going to Ukraine, for defending Ukrainian territory, Ukrainian governance, and so on. So again, we have this uneven enforcement that really fails to recognize the, the contexts in which people live, and also that the way to intervene in these conflicts can't really happen at the scale of the court. Like it, it actually doesn't, like what, what good does it do? Someone went and fought in Syria and came back. What good does it do to prosecute that person? Um, and so that's, I don't know, another major limitation of the courts. But there's all sorts of things. They, the admittance of expert knowledge by self-proclaimed terrorism experts. There's all kinds of limitations of, of what the courts can do in litigating the global war on terror. And speaking of experts on terrorism, you do examine terrorology and terrorologists. What's wrong with their interventions? So part of what, so terrorologists are these self-proclaimed terrorism experts who, one of the jokes is that they're hydroponically grown by the Bush administration, by the State Department. And part of what's at issue is that they are selected as experts. Their fund, their research is funded by the government to produce and recite epistemic positions that confirm the state's position. So, if the government, if the U.S. government needs someone to essentially say, "We need to invade Iraq because Iraq has weapons of mass destruction," you have a whole host of so-called terrorists who will recite this narrative, and so. This happens in courts where the courts admit as experts for expert um, testimony, terrorism knowledge that is far from accepted social science research within the field. So there's an example that I give in the book where Evan Coleman, who's one of the most uh, well-known terrorologists, is admitted um, as an expert witness in court. And um, part of what he testifies is that Al-Qaeda has this loose organizational structure where only the top-level leaders know Al-Qaeda's operational plans. So for low-level Al-Qaeda operatives or just these random terrorism defendants, they might not have any idea what anybody else is doing in the organization. And so a lack of knowledge about Al-Qaeda's operational plans isn't evidence of someone's innocence it's actually evidence. The absence of evidence is used as evidence of someone's participation in a terrorist organization, right? So it's this like really convoluted logic that appears to be rooted in social science, but actually has no basis in science. And so the role of these terrorologists is to provide a so-called factual basis for jurors to interpret what they're hearing and seeing in court. Speaking of the social sciences, how do you think that the, I guess, what you might describe as the invention of the, the terrorist, how has that informed academic understandings of political violence? And I guess, why do you think that perhaps more effort should be made to understand political violence as opposed to what's termed terrorism? So part of the history of the term terrorism is that by its very definition, state violence cannot count or qualify as terrorist violence. So this means that if Syria drops chemical weapons on its civilian population, 
this doesn't qualify as terrorism. So first of all, it, so on the one hand, it, it helps narrow the kinds of moral outrage we have over certain forms of violence. It, it provides an alibi for state violence by excluding it from this definition of terrorism. But what we saw from the 1970s onward was that there was always a moral evaluation baked into the concept of terrorism. And what this has meant is that if you even try to explain terrorism, you're seen as a terrorist sympathizer. And and the idea is that there is no rational thought or explanation about why terrorists do what they do. And so like we shouldn't study terrorists in this way because they defy logic. So it also in the public sphere made talking about terrorism not permissible. And then it also directed social science research to essentially operate from the premise that terrorists are evildoers, they're irrational, they're depraved murderers, and to begin an exploration of violence um, from that basis, rather than from one that says, U.S. soldiers join the military for all kinds of reasons, and they engage in all kinds of acts of violence for these different reasons. Like, we would never just say U.S. soldiers are depraved murderers who are duped by the government to do these terrible things, right? But that's what the concept of terrorism, by reducing it to these acts of evil by evildoers, makes it really difficult to to take seriously the role of violence in social change, to take seriously the material conditions in which violence circulates. It, It just like reduces our ability to even think or talk about violence in a way beyond just these are crazy people doing crazy things. I guess given the somewhat unruly nature and political instability of the concept of terrorism, do you think it's time for the Journal of Terrorism and Political Violence to rename itself the Journal of Political Violence? That is, do you think there's, or what kind of place do you think the concept of terrorism has within sociology and political science? Is it something that should be abandoned or simply restricted and and applied in very particular cases? Yeah, this has been an interesting debate. I think one of the biggest pushes within the United States has been to broaden the concept of terrorism, to say, yes, Dylan Roof, other white supremacists who enact mass violence should be classified as white supremacists. But what we see both legislatively and practically is that this broader definition of terrorism means that indigenous water protectors, for example, protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline, Stop Cop City protesters protesting the building of a new police facility in Atlanta, all of these folks get marked as terrorists. And so what we know is that when you're trying to expand who count, who is a terrorist, who's labeled a terrorist, and increasing the criminalization of those different forms of terrorism, it inevitably blows back on communities of color, politically active communities. And so there's a real push to not expand the definition of terrorism anymore because of calls within the United States for more domestic terrorism legislation to give the police more power, more tools to police, criminalize, prosecute, incarcerate communities. 
So I think the question is, how do we think about this thing that we call terrorism in a way that accounts for the relationship between politics and violence? And to think about violence as not just rooted in some individual pathology, but really rooted in social structure and political economy and institutions and material conditions. And so for me, it doesn't matter what we call it. We can call it political violence. We can call it something else. But it's really what are the questions that we're asking? What do we take for granted? What do we not take for granted? How are we thinking about power and politics in our study of this of this thing, political violence? And so I think one of my hesitations at saying like, yes, we should just call it political violence is that we also know that the state and other powerful entities can, can take some kind of like progressive or insurgents term or concept or tool and reincorporate it back into the state and turn it into, again, a tool of the state. And so I think that that's whatever, however we're thinking and talking about this social phenomenon, we have to really guard against the way that the state can take that from us and use it against us. That's really what countering violent extremism was about, right? It was like, we recognize that communities are resisting blanket criminalization, blanket surveillance, and we're going to use that, use that critique to our advantage to roll out a different kind of national security apparatus. And so I think the more that we critique the concept of terrorism, the more this national security state is going to listen and possibly offer us something else. And so I think we really have to guard against not being duped by sexy terms and really be rooted and grounded in a kind of political analysis that accounts for the structural material conditions in which violence circulates. Nicole, in looking at these trials, could you elaborate a little on some of the impacts that they have upon the families and the broader communities from which the defendants emerge? Yeah, so terrorism trials are are deeply controversial and they create enormous stigma within families, but across entire communities. And so a lot of what I saw was that once once somebody was, just say someone's child was convicted of terrorism after they were a victim of a sting operation, after they expressed interest in traveling to Syria, that family can be like excommunicated from, from the community and they lose their businesses, they lose friends, they lose social ties. It's also extremely dif- uh, difficult to provide mutual aid. So many families put and communities put money on the books for, for loved ones who are incarcerated. And there's so much fear of being associated with a convicted terrorist or even uh, being seen as providing material support to a convicted terrorist, which could be criminalized and prosecuted, that they don't do this. And so there are a lot of people who are locked up and don't have access to any resources or don't have access to things like family visits, phone calls, and so on. So there's an enormous burden that communities who experience these these terrorism prosecutions experience. There's, there's so much blowback, there's so much stigma, and there's also so much silence. I came at this as, a, as an abolitionist, as well as a social scientist, and abolitionists haven't been talking about young people who are criminalized as terrorists, young people who are charged and prosecuted as terrorists. And it's, it, again, is seen as the third rail of political organizing is that terrorists are seen as so disposable, as irredeemable, as, as really throwaway that nobody has any support and nobody wants to even have a conversation about these young people who are locked away and the impact on their families. Nicole, I understand the US has quite strong constitutional 
protections on speech, so you're free to say what you want, really, right? But how has the, I guess, the concept of tourism, CVE, these trials, how do you think it's impacted upon discussions about these questions? And one of the reasons I ask is because, I guess, Australia uh, is somewhat distinct from the United States in the sense that it doesn't have these protections, and I'm aware of uh, many cases of people who've been um, uh, identified making various statements um, which has then meant that they've become you know, subject to surveillance and so on, sometimes uh, recruited. Uh, there's a whole range of techniques that the state employs in order to isolate and uh, you know, uh, neutralise these elements. So, yeah, how is it possible for people to speak? Why is it not possible for people in the United States to speak more freely about these uh, subjects given this uh, constitution that guarantees their, their rights to do so? Yeah, it's interesting. I talk about in the conclusion of, of terrorism on trial, there's a case of a college college student, Thomas Ozadinsky, who was charged and convicted with writing computer code to more easily disseminate ISIS propaganda on empty telegram chat rooms, which is something actually that academics have tried to make ISIS content available for the study of rebel groups. And so what this person, what this kid was doing was no different actually than what academics were doing. And so this was a, was a huge question. Isn't this constitutionally protected First Amendment free speech rights? And, and the government essentially said, no, this is material support to a terrorist organization. Like you're providing, you're spreading ISIS ISIS propaganda that is providing material support to a foreign terrorist organization. And so I think in two ways, we've been able, the United States has been able to infringe on this First Amendment free speech protection. The first, again, is through the concept of radicalization, of tying radical beliefs, radical ideas to this progression or trajectory towards violent extremism. So the mere expression of support for ISIS is seen as an indicator of potential terrorist activity, right? And therefore needs to be criminalized. And then the second is that you also mark that speech act as a form of material support that's prosecutable under material support laws, right? So it's illegal to provide money, resources, even translation, medicine to a foreign terrorist organization. And so it is both treating certain speech acts as precursors to violent extremism and therefore able to be criminalized. And then the second is to actually equate speech acts with material support for terrorism. And so that's a that's a really scary thing, particularly if you're a Muslim or Arab in the United States, where advocating for a particular political group, advocating for a particular political position can get you marked as a potential terrorist and that you could be in a courtroom trying to defend your speech acts as not a, not a form of a material support to terrorism. Nicole, there's a roaring conflict going on in Israel-Palestine, that seems to have had the effect of creating a free speech crisis on college campuses in the United States and elsewhere. What do you see as being the relationship of what you've been studying to this current phenomena? Is this a, in what ways is this distinct? How does it relate to repression of other forms of speech and activism? Sure. I think it's, I think the repression we're seeing on college campuses is in some ways very similar. It's this idea that somehow expressions uh, of Palestinian liberation or free Palestine is seen as supporting essentially random acts of terrorism. 
And again, it's, it's vacating the politics and the material conditions. So, so part of this begins obviously before October 7th, but the way that October 7th was framed again as these irrational, depraved murderers and not leaving room to both condemn the Hamas attacks and also locate them within particular material conditions. And so if we're serious about reducing political conflict in the region, how do we think about what's driving the conflict? Things like the occupation, invasion, and so on, as the, some of the precursors to this act uh, of, of violence, right? And so, so that's the, the context. That's the mainstream narrative that Hamas is evil, they're evildoers, there's no reason for what they did, it's just because they're terrorists. And so that's the, that's the narrative that U.S. political pundits have put out there justifying Israel's right to defense. And so it's in that context that an expression for free Palestine gets coded and marked as potentially violence, as anti-Semitic, and as certainly in violation of people's right to feel safe on campus. And so the the repression is connect like countering violent extremism comes out of this long history of policing and criminalizing political uprisings and, and political dissents in this country. We can think about the repression of the Black Panthers through different forms of police programming, including infiltration. And so there's a long history of the repression of the Palestinian liberation movement. And so we're seeing one iteration of that. And that could be wearing a keffiyeh being criminalized, right? Having the Palestinian flag is being criminalized, right? Because they're seen as support for Hamas, which is considered a foreign terrorist organization. And so we see how this is an Israel-Hamas war. There's Hamas-controlled hospitals, right? How the, the blanket invocation of Hamas is a way to essentially mark any expression of free Palestine as connected to Hamas and therefore an expression of, of terrorist violence. And so, yeah, so there's a long history uh, of where this repression comes from, and it's particularly heightened at this moment. And part of this is about the intimidation and harassment on college campuses is about raising the costs of political dissidents for young people in order to, to repress the movement on college campuses. We'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on. If people want to find the book, it is called Terrorism on Trial, Political Violence and Abolitionist Futures. And people can find you on Twitter at Geog Nicole. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll be back next week. See you later. See you then. Turn
stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Victoria's wildlife need your help when bushfires strike. They can be injured, dehydrated or disoriented after bushfires. Call Wildlife Victoria 84007300 if you see wildlife in distress or for more information. To donate or volunteer, go to wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter.